So I know what you're thinking. <laughs> we just celebrated Easter last week, and we got all jazzed up about the power of Jesus rising from the dead. And now we're watching some sad video about, a video about some guy who's lamenting over hope being lost, about being abandoned by God. And see, Easter really should be a time of new beginning for all of creation. Because the power that rose Jesus from the grave is inside of us when we believe. But sometimes our circumstances in life are such that we begin to lament. And we begin to mourn and we get trapped in sadness as though we don't even have access to that power. Last week, Lance talked about the power that rose Jesus from the grave. And he challenged each one of us to think about what is the one thing that we need that power for in our lives. And today, we're going to look at circumstances that can block us from accessing that power. And before we do, let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for each person that you brought here today. And Father God, I know that you have something to say to each one of us here. And so Lord, as we're, as we're talking through this, Father, I just pray that that each person would hear the specific message you have for them. I pray that you would speak, Lord, and that your Holy Spirit would touch each one. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Mally's here today, and I think everybody here knows that um, my oldest daughter, Rachel, had a baby. And... (laughs) Yay, Mally. Yay, Rachel. So she's five months old. She was born on November 30th. Okay. So November 30th, I was at the hospital with Rachel and Kenny, had spent the whole night there. We went in there on the 29th in the afternoon. And the joy that I experienced by being able to be there in the room is so different from the joy that we experience when we're actually giving birth to the children. (laughs) Because, well, for obvious reasons, right? I mean, you're just so distracted by the pain and the monitors and the pain medicine and everything else that's going on. Or some of us who do natural childbirth are just distracted by the pain, right? But everything's going on when you're having the baby. When you're not the one having the baby, it's really cool because you can sit and you can think about the spiritual aspect of what is about to happen. And that's what I was thinking about that whole night while Rachel had gotten her epidural and she was asleep and Kenny was asleep and everybody's asleep except for me. I'm sitting there thinking about there is a soul. There is a soul that is going to come from the spiritual realm, if you will, into the physical realm when Rachel gives birth to this baby. And she's going to be a part of our lives and a part of our family. And that was really deep for me to sit there and ponder. And so when Mally was born, it was just amazing to be able to watch that life come into her and, and her take her first breath and cry that first cry. And we were all just so jubilant, even Rachel in, in the midst of her pain and exhaustion. You know how it is, moms. You know, you're just overwhelmed with joy. Well, they had scooped her up, and they had put her in the little warming tray. I don't know what it's called. And they hadn't even started um, measuring her yet. And my phone rang, and it was my mom. And 
I took the call, you know, because I'm like, Mom, Mally's here, Mally's here. When are you coming? When are you coming? Can you, can you be here by 10? <laughs> you know, it was 7.15 in the morning, now mind you. And um, I said, I'll call you back. I'll call you back. It was too much going on. So I called her back, and turns out the reason she was calling was to tell me that we needed to go over to the nursing home where my dad was because they had called in hospice, and he wasn't doing well. And I said, well, come on, surely, you know, you can come on over here and see the baby first, and then we'll spend the night, and then we'll go check on Dad tomorrow. And she said, no, no, we need to go. We need to go today. And so I was still, full of, joy, still full of joy, and I'm just not processing what's happening. I was just in denial, I guess. But I called Lance, and he, he left work and came and got me because there was no way I could drive. I was so tired. And we drove over to Walterboro, and we got there, and my dad was just, I would just seen him three days before, and he was he was about gone. And um, I had the privilege of spending about an hour with him by myself, or just Lance and I, before my mom and my brother got there. And I was able to talk to him, and I was able to say some things to him that I needed to say. I was able to apologize for some things. I was able to sing You Are My Sunshine to him and tickle his back <laughs> the way he did when I was a little girl. And then Mom and Gary came, and they were able to say what they wanted to say. And then, so Mally was born at 7.15. At 3.15, exactly eight hours later, my arms were around my dad, and my head was on his chest when he took his last breath. I can't articulate the magnitude of the experience that that was spiritually. Eight hours. It's almost as though it's like God was just ending his work day, you know, his eight-hour work day. Clock out, cha-ching. You know, go from one beginning of life to an ending of life on this earth. Now, it would have been really easy to just lament, Right? And to question God and say, why today of all days are you going to take dad? You know, why is the joy of the morning going to be overshadowed by such sadness? And get stuck there. But we didn't. We didn't. Instead, in the minutes after dad passed, we were sitting there with him. And what we were doing was talking and imagining what he was seeing. What are his eyes seeing right now? What's he experiencing? What's he feeling? Because we knew that it wasn't an ending. We knew it wasn't something to lament over. It was an ultimate beginning for him. It was a beginning for Mally coming to the earthly realm. It was a beginning for Dad moving into the eternal realm. And we know that because of Easter, right? Well, the disciples some 2,000 years ago did not feel that on the Saturday after Jesus was crucified. They didn't feel it. When they watched Jesus die on the cross and they saw his body taken down and he was put into that tomb, they weren't sitting there going, oh, gee, I wonder what he's, I wonder what he's experiencing. They didn't realize he was going to come back from the dead, even though Jesus had kind of told them or, you know, at least alluded to it a few times. It hadn't processed in their mind what was coming next. So they're stuck in this place of sadness, at least for the day, right? They were stuck there. 
and they were probably feeling all kinds of emotions, and they're probably asking questions like, where's the kingdom that he promised? You know, where's the hope that he taught us about? Sometimes um, circumstances in our lives can cause us to do the same thing. On this side of the resurrection, we know the answers to those questions they were asking, theoretically. But sometimes things happen in our lives that cause us to have those emotions. And we get so caught up in those emotions that we forget that that power that rose Jesus from the grave is in us and available to us, not just for salvation, for us to go to heaven one day, but to live eternal life here and now to pull us through our circumstances. So there are various circumstances that every individual faces in life that can create a barrier to living in the freedom and abundant life that Jesus offers us. And we're going to talk about those. We have a handout today. We don't usually do handouts at Real Life, but we have one today, and it's just for me to keep me on track because I've already talked for probably 10 minutes, and that should have taken two. So this is going to keep us on track, <laughs> and it's going to help you stay with me because I'm in case I wander. This will keep me from wandering too far. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to take all of life's circumstances and categorize them into three categories, okay? Three categories of circumstances that we can find ourselves in that can create barriers to us accessing the power of the cross, barriers to us experiencing joy in our lives, okay? Category number one is victimization. That's your first blank. If you like to fill in blanks, don't feel like you have to, but there's blanks. And if anybody needs pens, there's pens. So victimization is when things happen to us through no fault of our own, okay? And when we get caught up in our victim mentality, the barrier that's created is when we dwell there in sadness and confusion. Okay, sadness and confusion are going to follow things happening to us. Don't get me wrong. But when we dwell in that sadness and confusion, it can create a barrier to us experiencing joy and living the abundant life. Make sense? Okay. Category number two is personal sin. Personal sin. We all have it, okay? But we can suffer the consequences of our personal sin, of our own sinful actions, and then end up dwelling in guilt and regret. The barrier comes into play when we dwell in guilt and regret. We all sin. We all know we're forgiven in our, in our heads, <laughs> in our heads, but we can still find ourselves dwelling in guilt and regret. And then the third category we're going to talk about today is God's discipline. God's discipline. And this occurs when we have to spend time under God's hand for a season. And I'm not saying that everybody in here has experienced this. And I'm assuming the majority of you probably have not. But we're going to talk about it anyway. Um, the barrier here, we can't really control. 
because we're pretty much confined in that discipline until he releases us from it. And I'll explain what I mean about that in a minute. Okay, so three categories of life circumstances create three different types of barriers to experiencing joyful life. And it's important to realize that hope does exist in all three of those categories. Hope does exist no matter which one of those you may find yourself in. And I encourage you, too, as you're looking at your chart, to think about which of those boxes you might be in right now. Because everybody on that chart should be in one of those boxes. And maybe you're one of the fortunate ones that's all the way over in the green box that says abundant life. And that's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. And even if you are there, I encourage you to just think about where you were before and how you got over there. Okay? So let's take them one by one. We're going to start with victimization. So sometimes things completely out of our control happen to us. And... Um, They can be physical. They can be an emotional event. Everyone has bad things happen to them along the way, but that's not what what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about life events that are so traumatic that they dramatically alter your entire future, potentially. They dramatically alter who you are as a person, at least mentally, okay? I'm going to give you a couple of examples, all right? Example number one, personal example. When I was a girl, it was instilled very strongly in me that purity was a virtue that we should all strive for. And not only that, it was a command from God. And if we broke that command, there would be some pretty heavy consequences. Now, the world back then and even today doesn't necessarily support that idea. You know, so girls are not necessarily encouraged by society at large to maintain their purity, right? So let's say a girl is resolute, and she decides she's going to maintain her purity, and she's doing everything she can do to maintain it. She's fighting the fight. And then one evening, that purity is forcibly and violently stolen from her. Not her fault, right? But completely, radically changes the way she sees herself, the way she thinks her family and others see her, the way she thinks God sees her, because purity is a virtue. Now what? This wasn't how her life was supposed to be. Now what? Another example, not a personal one. A boy loves baseball when he's a kid. And he plays little league. He goes to summer camps. He does everything in his power to be the best baseball player he can be. He makes the middle school team. He makes the high school team. The college scouts are checking him out. He's looking great. He gets signed onto the college of his choice. He goes to college. He is a star. The pros are eyeing him. He gets signed to a minor league training camp or whatever. And then his senior year in college, he's in a serious car accident, and he's paralyzed from the waist down. So he's worked his whole life to be a professional ball player, and now not only can he not play ball, 
He can't walk. Now what? Now what? Last example. A young woman wants to get married and have children. So she gets married in her early 20s. She starts having babies. She gets a career going. She's balancing family and career. Everything's looking great. Ten years, three kids later, she gets this random phone call out of nowhere and finds out her husband has been having an affair for the last two years. So she stops her career. She focuses on her family. She goes to counseling with her husband. They put things back together. Even have another kid, because everything's great now. And then six years later, she gets another phone call, and there's more affairs. Counseling. Divorce. So here she is in her 40s, divorced with four children who are all suffering in various ways. This was not what was supposed to happen. (laughs) This wasn't how her life was supposed to be. But here she is. So the power of the resurrection in all of those circumstances offers an answer, offers a solution for healing from any of those things. You know, not just life after death, but any of those things. But in all three of them, a barrier has been created to a joyful life. And that barrier exists when we dwell in the place of sadness and confusion rather than looking beyond it. Okay? Scripture is full of examples of people who've had terrible things happen to them. In the first chapter of the book of Job, we read how a perfectly innocent man of integrity lost everything. He lost his family, his fortune, his health, through no fault of his own. Basically, Satan wanted to show God that if he took away all of the blessings of his life, his family, his seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 camels, No, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pair of oxen, 500 donkeys. So all this sounds crazy. That just means he was super rich. He was like the richest guy in the whole land. And not only that, he had killer integrity. Like they would have parties. It tells us this in the first chapter of Job. They would have parties and festivals, and the morning after, he would go out and burn a sacrifice for each one of his children because he was afraid that they may have done something or thought something that dishonored God. That's when we pray for our kids, but like he would go like burn a bull or something to, you know, for their purification. So he was a man of great integrity. But the Lord said, okay, Satan, he's a man of integrity. He's not going to give up loyalty to me, but go ahead, take his things away and see what happens. And so most of you are familiar with the story, but, you know, in in the first two chapters of like a 40-some chapter book of the Bible, he loses his family, he loses all of the animals I just described, all of his servants, his homes, his servants' homes. Everything he owns is gone. And And Satan, I guess, is waiting for him to just curse God 
but he doesn't. Instead, he falls to his knees, and he says, basically, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, and he worships God. So Satan goes, well, okay, he still has his health, though. If we take his health away, then he's going to curse you. So God says, all right, go ahead. So Satan causes boils to go from head to toe all over his body. So Job doesn't really curse God at that point, but he starts to fall into a bit of a funk. And for the next 38 chapters of this book of the Bible, we hear him lamenting. He has some friends come around because they'd heard about the terrible things that happened, and they came, and they were um, consoling him, but not really because basically what they were doing was trying to explain to him why what happened to him had happened to him. Surely there has to be some sin in your life. There has to have been some sin that caused this to happen. And Job was adamant he hadn't done anything. He hadn't done anything wrong. And so he was like, why has this happened to me? Because I didn't do anything wrong. And the friends were like, well, surely you did do something wrong. And then another friend was like, well, you're doing something wrong now. And, you know, so it just goes on and on and on for 38 chapters. And then, and then something changes. Um, look at, um, look starting in chapter 42 at verses 1 through 6. The Lord had just spoken to Job, by the way, after all the lamenting and carrying on and the dialogue back and forth with the friends. And Job, and the Lord basically said, who are you to question any of this? Who are you to question any of this? Did you create the world? And he goes through just a gamut of all the powerful things that he, the Lord, hath done. And when he was finished, Job's response is, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes, and I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. So what just happened? Because right after this, Job is restored. All of his stuff is restored. What happened? Because he was lamenting. He was in a, in a pit. He was stuck in a place of sadness and confusion. And then he's restored. If we look at Psalm 51... Verse 17 says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Did you hear brokenness in him? And, and before you, because before you, I can hear some of you and I know which ones you are, saying, well, we shouldn't have to be broken. <laughs> what do you mean we have to be broken? Why does God want us to be broken? Broken, um, a counselor that I really respect and trust gave me this book to read. If anybody wants to borrow it, you can borrow it, but it's got Gatorade all over it, and it's kind of sticky. It's called brokenness. But um, this author says true brokenness is a lifestyle. It's a moment-by-moment -moment lifestyle of agreeing with God 
about the true condition of my heart and life. It's about aligning our self-will with God's will. And when we recognize that sometimes things happen, and it's not for us to know why necessarily, but that God is sovereign, and that I want whatever God wants for me, something changes. Something changes in the spiritual realm. Something changes in my heart. Something changes in my mind when I accept that. Does that make sense? So let's see what happens next in Job. When Job prayed for his friends, because God had asked him to pray for those friends, because those friends were not doing him any good. They were wrong. He fussed at them, by the way, the ones that were telling him he was sinning. When Job paid for, prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Then all his brothers, sisters, and former friends came and feasted with him in his home. And they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. And we'll stop there. And it goes on to say that his fortune doubled after that. He was given seven more sons and three more daughters, but then the sheep were like 14,000 now, and the, and the camels were 6,000 or whatever, two times what I said before is. So he was restored, restored back double what he had had originally. The barrier that took him from that sadness to joy and restoration was acknowledging his brokenness before God. He stopped questioning. He aligned his will with what God's will was and acknowledged his personal brokenness. Okay, i got to start flying through the rest of this. All right, so we talked about brokenness. We talked about the barrier. We talked about examples of brokenness. The next one's personal sin. So maybe you're the one having an affair. <laughs> Or maybe you've had an affair and you're in the aftermath of it. Or maybe you have some kind of addiction. Maybe you've developed an addiction to alcohol or, or to drugs and you're fighting through that. You're in the middle of it or you're on the, the backside of it, but you're, the struggle is so strong and so real. Maybe it's porn. You know, maybe it's something that you just cannot shake that is causing you to dwell in a place that's blocking you from abundant life. The key here, the bridge, if you will, to get from the barrier to the abundant life is accepting the forgiveness that God offers you. Now, that, of course, requires, first of all, that you confess, you know, that you're sinning. You know, and if, if you're sinning and you don't really think you're doing anything wrong or whatever, that's a whole different story. But assuming that you recognize what's going on is wrong, and you've confessed, and, you've, and God's forgiven you, but you're still, because you can be forgiven for something and still go on living your life in guilt and regret because you're looking backwards constantly, and you're like, gosh, if only I hadn't, whatever, if only I hadn't had that affair, you know? My family might still be together. If only this, if only that. And so you're past it. You move past it. Things, what's happened has happened. But that guilt and that regret can hold you down. And there's countless examples in the Bible of people that committed sin and moved past it. Countless. And the great news is not only did they move past it, God actually used them to do kingdom work even after the fact. Moses, right? 
Moses murdered that Egyptian, um, then look what he ended up doing, leading all of the people of Israel, taking them out of captivity through the Red Sea. Pretty huge, right? What if he was still back there wallowing, oh my gosh, I murdered that guy. What am I going to do, you know? Moses, David, we talk about David a lot around here, you know? David committed sin, came out of it. The Lord forgave him, right? Paul, how about Paul? You know, persecuting Christians left and right. Look how the Lord used him. But the example that I was going to talk about a little bit more specifically was Rahab, and I'm going to fly through it, though. So Rahab, we are introduced to her in Joshua. So Joshua has taken over leadership of the Israelites from Moses because Moses has died, and God has appointed Joshua as the leader. And he's going to take the people back into the promised land. And before they go in there, he decides to send some scouts or spies in there to scout out the land so they can figure out what's going on. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there all night. So that's how she's introduced to us. She's a prostitute. But she ends up hiding the spies because word gets out that there are spies there. And the men, men come wanting to get the spies. And she says, no, I don't, they're not, they came by earlier, but they're gone. And she was really hiding them. And she ends up being blessed by God. Her family is protected. When they do come in and raid that town, she and her family are protected by God. So God not only forgave her, but used her to do his kingdom work. And before you go thinking that your sin is the one sin that God can't forgive and that he can't use, let me assure you, it's not. It's not, because there's some doozies in the Bible, and every last one of them was forgiven, right? All right. Oh. Okay, so the last, the last place that we can find ourselves where there's a barrier created between us and joyful life is being under the hand of God's discipline. Now, if you've ever been under the hand of God's discipline before, you know how heavy it is. And don't get the misconception. I'm not, I'm not saying that you... You know, you went and, and did something wrong, and now God's punishing you by taking this from you or doing that from you. When the Bible talks about someone being under the hands of God's discipline, typically it's for a, re a repetitive sin that the person has been warned over and over and over again by God to stop, and they just haven't. And God's love for us has no limits, but I've learned that his patience does have some limits. Not that he decides I'm done with you and throws me into the pit forever, never to see me again. But after a certain point, he will step in with punishment, if you will. 
And the example um, that I'm going to share with you real quick is we've been studying, a lot of us girls, um, the book of Daniel and Beth Moore study. And in chapter 4 of Daniel, we read about a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon at the time, a dream he had had that had just chilled him to the core. He didn't know what it meant, so he had called Daniel to come and interpret this dream for him. Okay? So Daniel's called in, and Nebuchadnezzar proceeds to tell him about this dream. I'm not going to read it because we're running short on time. But if you can imagine in your mind, that's not it, though. Don't put that one up yet. So if you can imagine in your mind, this is basically the dream. He dreams that he sees this mighty tree, like this huge tree, if you can picture it. And the fruit from this tree is feeding all the people, as far as the eyes can see. They're all being fed off this tree. Wild animals are gathering underneath of it. It's just glorious. But while he's observing the tree, a messenger comes down from heaven and says, chop that tree down. Not only chop it down, but bind the stump so that the only nourishment it has is due from heaven. And then it goes from talking about the tree like it's an it to talking about the tree as though it's a man. Because it says, he will be caused to eat grass like a cow and will lose his mind until he admits that the Lord is sovereign. So in case you're wondering what in the world Nebuchadnezzar had done to, to have a dream like this, it was, it was a good bit of stuff, but basically it boiled down to pride. He had a lot of pride. God had made him ruler over Babylon, this huge powerful city, but he didn't acknowledge that. He felt like he had done everything, basically. You might recall the story of when he created a gold statue and said, everybody at the sound of the music has to bow down to my statue, and if you don't, you get tossed in the furnace, and there was Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego that got tossed into the furnace. That was King Nebuchadnezzar. So these things had been happening leading up to this time, and God had sent Daniel before, and he had warned Nebuchadnezzar that he needed to stop worshiping the false gods of that time and acknowledge the one true God. And Nebuchadnezzar even would acknowledge that God was, was God and powerful, but the problem was he wouldn't acknowledge that he was the only God. So Daniel proceeds to tell him the meaning of the dream, and let's go ahead and put the meaning up. It's that passage that you had up a second ago. So Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, this is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to, the Lord, to my Lord the King, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. You will be drenched with the dew of heaven. For seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone that he chooses. But the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. So even at this point, he's given another chance. 
but he doesn't take it. It was about a year or so later before the dream was actually fulfilled. But he was looking out over his kingdom saying, wow, look what I've built. All these people depend on me. I provide for all of this nation. And that very night, his kingdom was taken from him. And he was banished from the kingdom. And he literally lived in the wild and ate grass and lost his mind. And the scholars feel the seven periods of time represented seven years. And there's a lot more that I could say about this, but I'm not, I'm not going to. But the discipline of God really will make you feel insane. Really will make you feel you've lost your mind. Because it's complete and total separation. But the good news is, even if you find yourself in that place one day, there is hope and there is restoration. And it comes from acknowledging that God is the true God of the universe. And as Beth Moore said, this is a lesson that you want to learn from the pages of Scripture. You don't want to learn this one in real life. If you haven't been there, don't let yourself get there. Don't let yourself get there. Because it's ugly. I'm going to wrap up with um, a psalm that I wanted to share. And this psalm really means a lot to me because one day, many, several years ago, I was stuck in that barrier place. Not just from one of the three categories, but from all three categories simultaneously, if you can imagine. And I had gone out in the woods behind my house with my Bible, and I just went out there, and I was sitting on the ground, and I was crying, just sitting there crying out to God, you know, please restore this. Please fix this. Please don't punish me (laughs) for this. And I know you'll think this sounds like something from a movie, but I swear to you this happened. I'm sitting on the ground with my Bible in the woods. The wind starts blowing, and the pages of my Bible just start turning. And I see out of the corner of my eye this leaf it comes wafting down, and it lands on my Bible. So I think, hmm, <laughs> this must be important. Justin, put up Psalm 42, if you would. These were the words that the leaf landed on. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Day and night I have only tears for food, while my enemies continually taunt me, saying, Where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of a great celebration. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. This verse right here is key to abundant life because no matter what box you're in on that chart, No matter where you found yourself, when you acknowledge your brokenness, when you accept the forgiveness, and when you don't lose hope, oh, I missed that. 
the discipline barrier. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah, thank you. You have to receive correction and don't lose heart. You can't lose heart even when you're in that discipline phase. It's easy to grow weary and want to give up, but just hang in there because you know God's coming back. So if you do all of those things, you will praise him again. You will praise him again. And that is what you can write in your green box. Praise. Praise and peace. Praise and peace.